I think there's no question that every human heart wants to know that someone loves them that way. And for that someone to be God himself, that's the best gift of all because unlike the people we know whose loyalties are often fickle and whose lives are, have a beginning and an end, so we're constantly saying goodbyes, God is forever and his love is forever. Romans 8 tells us that no matter what happens in life or in death, anywhere in the universe, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have Christ, if you're trusting in Him, you're experiencing the love of God, and it's a love that will never quit on you. You know, as John writes at the end of the first century as an an old man and thinks back to the years when he was probably in his early 20s, he may have even started following Christ as a, a teenager, his latter teen years, he, he thinks back to some really significant experiences. You know, most of the days of our lives as we look back are kind of like flyover country uh, as you look out of an airline window. You have a general idea of what happened, but you forget a lot of the details. But some experiences are so life-changing that they're unforgettable. We remember what it was like to be there and and to live through it. And chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John record the hours in the upper room with Jesus as He taught His disciples and prayed for them before He headed to Gethsemane. There He'd be arrested and hauled away for an illegal nighttime trial on the eve of His crucifixion. And John, as a young man, was there. He never forgot how it felt to experience these events, and he writes to draw us into the intense, momentous hours just before Jesus is tried and crucified. So if you'll look with me in your Bibles at John 13, that's where we're going to start today. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack, and of course, we have the words up on the screen as well. We'll be reading 1 through 17 this morning. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who are in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand Jesus said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, 
but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Four themes that we see developed in this passage. The first in verses 1 and 2 is the theme of steadfast love, a love that never quits. We've sung about it this morning. Second, we see in verses 3 through 5, humble service. In verses 6 through 11, necessary cleansing. And finally, in 12 through 17, we see a blessed example, example we are to follow if we would be blessed, if we would be happy. But first, consider with me this theme of steadfast love that we find in the first two verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him. And then it goes on with the story. The feast of Passover commemorated the deliverance and exodus of Israel after years of slavery in Egypt. Despite determined refusal to let God's people go, Pharaoh's hardened heart gave way when God sent the tenth plague on Egypt. Pharaoh finally let Israel go. The death angel passed over the land, destroying all the firstborn. Each Israelite family who sacrificed an unblemished lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts and lintel of their house were spared the devastating plague of death. They were passed over without harm, hence Passover. They were spared from the death angel of the Lord and freed from the tyranny of Egypt. It all became an apt symbol of the redemption of Jesus the Messiah would fulfill. John the Baptist, you recall, first introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and He did so at that time. It was during Passover season. Jesus brings a deliverance far greater even than rescue from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, rescue from sin, rescue from Satan, rescue from death. Rescue from the deserved wrath of God. But like the first Passover, that rescue requires sacrifice. An innocent life given for guilty life. And Jesus is heading into that time of sacrifice. So Jesus will celebrate the Passover with His disciples, but He will also fulfill its meaning. That's why Paul later will call Jesus Christ our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Jesus knows His hour has come, the hour to die for our sins, time to depart and go to the Father. His mission is nearing its completion and keeping with God's saving purposes. He had loved His own throughout His earthly ministry. And as we read about that earthly ministry, we read about the interchanges between Jesus and His disciples. We, we learn their histories 
Um, it, it's stunning that He loved them this way. I mean, think of all their faults and their failings, their, their blind spots, their petty jealousies, their faltering faith. And as, as tough as we can be on them and as critical of them as we can be, if we will pay attention, we actually see a mirror that looks very much like ourselves in our own faltering faith. We all fall short of the glory of God. That is our nature. There's none righteous, not even one. And God showed His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have to earn His love. The fact is we can't. He has to give it freely if we're going to enjoy it at all. But Jesus didn't stop loving His own as He entered the crucible of great suffering, the mocking, the torture, the death for their sake. He said there's no greater love than that a man lay down his life for his friends and that the perfect God-man would love us as friends. Although we are born rebel sinners by nature and, 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 and that he would die to break sin's tyranny over us in order to restore us to fellowship with God is, is nothing short of astounding. It's why we call it amazing grace. I think sometimes we get this false sense of how much we deserve, but there's no way you can look at this equation. There's no way you can be honest about who you actually are and who Jesus is and, and look at the level of sacrifice that he made and say, oh, I deserved that. That is something that he gave by his grace, and it's astonishing. As Lord of the universe, and knowing all that he was about to undergo for our sake, his steadfast love for his own was unshakable. And that's important for us to remember whenever we enter a time of great crisis. This was a devastatingly dark time for his disciples. There was much they didn't understand. They will be overcome with fear, with disappointment, even disillusionment, perplexity as they go through the next few hours and days. But through it all, Jesus would not stop loving them. In fact, the darkness He was leading them into was for their sake. It was necessary. It would be life-giving. It would pay off literally forever. This steadfast love for His people is not confined to the apostles who accompanied Him on earth, and it's not confined to His time on earth because He continues to intercede for His own Steadfast love characterizes who God Himself is. The Psalms, exaltations of praise to God, repeatedly rejoice in this attribute of God, His steadfast love. It never quits. It's rooted in a covenant relationship. It shows itself in kind deeds. It's the great comfort of God's people, whatever troubles they encounter in the sin-cursed world. And, and the reality is that those who actually know God and have experienced His steadfast love start to display that same kind of loyal love that is God-like and that reminds people of Him. In stark contrast to this steadfast, faithful love of Jesus stands the betrayal of Judas. And Jesus already knew about that too. He had known it all along, for no heart is hidden from his view and nothing takes him by surprise. He is willingly laying down his life for his sheep. And even those who will betray him can't stop him from doing so. In fact, they will become part of how he gets there. He knows completely 
who his sheep are and who his sheep aren't. So if you're trusting in Jesus, when are you tempted to think his steadfast love toward you has somehow ended? And I think it's important for you to think about that in the context of what was about to happen, what's happening in this upper room, and what's going to happen in Gethsemane, and what's going to happen in that nighttime trial, what Jesus and his disciples are going to go through. I mean, I mean, think of the person that you love the most, that you feel closest to, that you have the most confidence in, the person you feel like you couldn't live without. Jesus, Jesus was greater than any person who could be in that slot for you. And, and these men started to realize they're going to lose him. And they're going to watch him be, they're going to watch him be savaged by evil men. They're going to see it. You talk about PTSD producing. And it is in that context that Jesus says he didn't stop loving them. He won't stop loving you either. So how does it help you in the daily grind of life as well as in the crises? And both can be great trials, right? Sometimes it's not the great trials. It's just that the on and on nature of life, just the same old, same old, and the, and the disappointments, and like it's never going to end. It's kind of, you know, you're never, you know, we've had a lot of sickness. Like the sickness is never going to end, and the, the trouble's never going to end. Like when will this ever get over? We can, we can lose the sense of his love. But if you would hold on to the reality of the Lord's steadfast love for you, how, how would that change how you look at the daily grind? I mean, if you could think of it this way, if you're thinking of Jesus actually walking with you, being loyal to you, loving you in the daily grind, and when you hit those occasional great crises that just throw you on your back or just produce terrifying fear in your heart, if you could hold on to the reality that Jesus loves you and he's proved it, how could that help you stay the course? And how can you actually leverage whatever betrayals you've experienced to increase your gratitude for God's ever loyal love toward his own? Look, you can't live too very long before you experience, you know, people turning on you or people not coming through for you. I mean, it it, it happens, sometimes it happens when we're very young. Our parents split up and we're, we feel abandoned by a parent. Or, or it happens in our teenage years where those that are your closest friends um, suddenly aren't your friends anymore and start talking bad about you. Or, or you, you are married or you're in a business and, and you find that not everybody, not everybody proves worthy of full trust. And there are times you are really betrayed. There's, there's no getting around it. Uh, not just feeling it, but actually being betrayed. Instead of making that, letting that make you bitter and letting that have you lose faith in God, why don't you let that push you toward the God whose loyal love never quits? I mean, think about it. No matter what happens, and some of you are in, in difficult times right now. Whatever, whatever happens, God is with you. Emmanuel is his name, God with us. And his love for you never quits no matter what is happening. 
He will get you safely home. He's the good shepherd. The second thing we obviously see in this passage is humble service. We read in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. The way John sets this up, he starts with what Jesus knows. Now, think about what Jesus knows. He knows that the Father has given all things into His hand. You can't say that about any other human being on the planet. All things into His hand. Remember uh, in the Great Commission, He says, um, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay? So, God's given all things into His hands. He has come from God and he's going back to God. He's eternal. He existed long before he ever came to earth, and he'll be going back to God. In light of that, with that as a backdrop, he laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel and a basin of water and washed his disciples' feet. Now, Jesus was not engaging in just some eye-catching ritual. It wasn't less, you know, not just for disciples. Um, kind of object lesson that he was giving here. It was simply a job that needed to be done. Walking the dusty streets of Jerusalem in sandals rendered your feet exceptionally dirty. And normally, the lowest of household slaves would do this task as guests came into the home. But evidently, there was no such slave there that night. So the customary and necessary task was left undone. None of the disciples rose to take care of it. It was obvious that it needed to be done, but it's a menial task. None of them rose to do it, but Jesus did. Jesus knows full well that God the Father has given all things into His hands. He is eternal. He's come from God and is about to return to God. He is the highest-ranking person in the room He is the highest-ranking person on the planet, but he takes on the role of a slave for the sake of those he loves. Philippians 2, Paul recalls his humility and says to us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the worst form of death available in the day. Washing feet may seem demeaning, and it was, but it was a small sacrifice compared to the humbling Jesus was about to undergo. Death on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, It was small compared to the giant step down God the Son had already taken to become a human being and to pitch His tent alongside of ours. It's just as He said, He is gentle and lowly of heart, and that's why it's safe to come to Him. Despite the reality that He's King of the universe, He engages in the humblest of service, even to the death. So I want you to think about this, because... This is important as to how we even view Christianity. Why is willing, humble service inseparable from the gospel of Christ? 
Think about what Christ had to do to bring good news to us. And and think about what he calls his disciples to do if they're going to follow him. Willing, humble service. You You can't extract it from the gospel and still have the gospel. So what lessons do you draw from the fact that the humblest person in the room was also the greatest? You know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, so-and-so is humble, or they'll say to you, oh, you're humble. Well, we have a lot of reasons to be humble. You know, have you ever thought about that? We have lots of reasons to be humble. If people knew you the way you know yourself, then you know you have lots of reasons to be humble. Not just to pretend like you're humble, but to be humble. Jesus was the humblest person in the room, but he was the greatest person in the room. So how do the actions of Jesus overturn the way the world thinks of greatness? And and I would encourage you this afternoon to meditate on this a little bit because we are so easily influenced by the way the world works, how we view success, how we view, like, you know, getting ahead in life, how we view ourselves when we succeed, and how often the way we're judging ourselves and the way we're judging others is is a worldly form of judgment. We're not thinking about serving others. We're thinking about how do we get ahead and how many people are serving us. It's, it's backwards to gospel thinking. The third thing that Jesus addresses is necessary cleansing. Beginning of verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, so he's working his way around the room, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. He was was a bold one, wasn't he? he? He often was telling Jesus what he shouldn't do. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, he didn't say, get behind me, Satan, this time. He said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So, to be fair to Peter... It is appalling that the Lord would do this kind of menial task, like washing Peter's dirty feet. It was a job at that time for the lowest of slaves. So the greatest among them was humbling himself to do it. And and Peter's sincere, but he's wrong in his response to it. He didn't understand what Jesus was doing and why. There's something humbling about having somebody greater than you are do something menial for you. And there's something humbling about letting Jesus clean you up. Because if you're having him clean you up, it means you didn't succeed in doing it. Jesus said, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And how, how often this is our experience in life, even as followers of Jesus, we're, we're grateful for what we do understand. And there's, there's lots that the Lord does reveal and the Spirit makes known to us We're no longer blind slaves of darkness, but there's still much along the path of following Jesus that we don't understand now. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, even at our best, we shall find that many of Christ's dealings with us are hard to understand in this life. The why of many a providence will often puzzle and perplex us quite as much as the washing puzzled Peter. Even so, there will be a day 
when every dark page in our life's history will be explained, and when, as we stand with Christ in glory, we shall know all. You know, if you're following Jesus, if you're serving God, there's just going to be tons of things you don't understand. He's God. You're not. I'm not. And sometimes we think if we can't explain it, it must not be true. But the reality is there's lots of true things that we can't explain. And Jesus then moves to the spiritual connection of what he's doing. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, he had washed the feet of everyone there, but, but not all were clean, Judas in particular. So clearly, Jesus is not talking about mere outward physical cleansing, but the heart reality of spiritual cleansing. So there's the menial task of serving, but he's also pointing to a a higher reality of how his humbling was going to end up cleansing them from sin. In our human nature, we we strive to make it on our own without outside help. You know, it's like it's it's the joke about men, right? We, We hate asking for directions. We'd rather get lost five times and figure it out for ourselves. Um, in, in our human natures, we don't want to ask for outside help, even from God. There has to come a point, though, when we realize that being spiritually clean from our sin plague, breaking its power over us, is utterly beyond our grasp to achieve. We have to humble ourselves to let Christ wash us clean. Now, the world's way is either to minimize the sinfulness of our sin or to exaggerate our ability to clean up ourselves. And either way leaves us unclean. Jesus must wash you or you'll never be clean. Jesus must wash you or you don't belong to Him. Even among the twelve was one who remained spiritually Unwashed. We do well to ask the question that the old gospel song asks, are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Despite his flaws and blind spots, Peter wants more than anything to belong to Jesus. So he lurches to the other extreme. Simon Peter said to him in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So what is he teaching us? Well, once cleansed from sin, a believer need only be cleansed from the daily defilement that comes from walking through this world. Don't think that because there was a day that you turned from your sin to trust in Jesus, the Savior from sin, that that you no longer need to live in repentance. The repentance and the faith keeps on going. That was the beginning. Your turning from sin was was not a one-time event. It was the beginning of a repentant way of life. Your trusting in Jesus was was the beginning of a trusting way of life. In this life, we're, we're surrounded with temptations. We're marked by sinful words and trends and people and we're subject to our own weaknesses. We are called 
to do daily battle against our sin. And the power of the indwelling Spirit of God enable us to do just that. It's actually what marks us as truly belonging to Jesus, according to Romans 8. So don't think that because you were right with God last week, everything is okay today. Be honest about what's really going on. Keep short accounts with God. Confess your sins whenever the Spirit convicts you. Make sure your eyes are open to to how certain things might be defiling your conscience and leading you in a path that you shouldn't be walking. Let Jesus wash your feet. Let His sanctifying of your life be a daily, ongoing process. You know, we, 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 we all have to keep working at this. We have to be honest. And God has a way of, of bringing our sins to mind and exposing things that kind of get under the radar. And without our even noticing, it's kind of become part of our life. And it builds and it builds and it builds. And, and finally, finally, somehow it, it hits the radar. Finally, uh, the Spirit, maybe through, through a, another believer, draws our attention to it. Well, what do you do when that happens? It's really important what you do when that happens, that, that you come to Jesus and have him wash you clean and, and clean up whatever that is, whatever defilement is coming to your life. You know, this is, this is why we start off Sunday mornings with a prayer of confession. It, it's not that this is standing in the place of having been redeemed by Jesus and washed by him. It's that there, there needs to be an ongoing uh, openness to the Spirit of God showing us where we've been defiled and coming to Him to confess our sins and knowing that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a, a way of life. Nothing can substitute for being spiritually cleansed by Jesus. And Judas' case in point, he was part of the group. He had preached. He had done miracles He'd been entrusted with the money. People trusted him, but he had never been cleansed. We know that his heart was still given over to greed, and with that greed came other evils. You know, one dominant sin that you leave unattended will bring like a nest of snakes with it. And so here we see, you know, Judas, his love of money led to an ongoing hypocrisy. He's, he's playing a role. It, it, there was the pride of wanting advancement by being part of the messianic kingdom. Um, it led to his betrayal of Jesus. It, it led to his being involved in conspiracy to murder Jesus. And it started just with greed. Sin does that to us. It takes us further than we, than we ever would want to go. It costs us more than we'd ever want to pay. But we leave it unattended. We don't let Jesus wash us, and it will take us down, and it will destroy our lives, and it will harm other people as well. If Jesus does not wash you from your sin filth, he says you don't belong to him. And apart from him, there is no escape. Apart from him, there is no life. Apart from him, there is no light. It doesn't matter how many church services you attend. I mean, Judas heard Jesus preach. The problem wasn't the preacher, right? It doesn't matter how many church services you attend or how many hymns you sing, whether they be high church or folk tunes. 
doesn't matter how many Bible verses from whatever version you can quote. doesn't matter how many doctrines you can articulate. And it doesn't matter how many of your friends and family are truly born-again Christians following Jesus. Have you been washed? Are you clean? To belong to Jesus, you must be washed from your sin, and He's the only one that can do it. Nothing else will do. There's no program that can get you there. You need a Savior. You need the blood of the Lamb to wash you clean. So let me ask you, as you think about your own life, when did you first experience the cleansing Jesus gives to those who trust fully in Him? Can you think back? I mean, some, for some of you, like you have to think back. I mean, I was four years old. That was a little while ago. Okay. But I, I do remember how it felt. It was like the song we sang, Charles Wesley, my chains fell off, my heart was free. It was like that. You remember that? Do you remember what it felt like to finally be clean? Remember what it felt like for that guilt that you had been dragging around like, like shackles finally fell off? You were no longer burdened. You were no longer fearful of the God who created you and loves you and redeems you, but he's now your heavenly father. Remember what that was like. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. What are the ways you stay alert to the defilement you pick up living in this world? And what do you do when you realize it's there? This is one of the values of having close friends, family that, that you're honest with and they're honest with you and, and, and they know that they can confront you when they see something. We all need that. Every one of us need that. But, but are you keeping... Are you in the Word and being sensitive to the Spirit enough that, that you actually notice the defilement? Or are you just going along with the trends of the day? And why do you think Judas was able to fool the other disciples for so long? And why was Jesus never fooled? You know, that tells you something. I mean, these are disciples of Jesus. These are people that are being trained by Jesus himself, and they were fooled. Jesus knows you, though, for who you actually are. He's never fooled. And that's just motivation to get real, to get honest about where you actually are. So what sins and spiritual dirt do you need to have Jesus wash clean through your confession and repentance today? You need to let him wash your dirty feet. Will you let him do that? Like, why, why should you let that keep bugging you? Why should you have that guilt festering in your heart? Why not be clean? 
And finally, Jesus gives us a blessed example in 12 through 17. It's clear that he's moving toward this theme as well. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And remember, these are going to be the apostles, the sent ones who are going to carry the gospel of Jesus to the world. So if they're going to carry the gospel as his messenger, they want to make sure the message is in line with the Lord that they're representing. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That word blessed is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word, also translated blessed, but we find it in places like Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates in it day and night. It speaks of, of true happiness. You could, you could really render it uh, happy is the man. Oh, the happiness of the man who has this kind of life. And it's rooted in a relationship of loyal love of God himself. This is the life. This is the what I was created to enjoy. And note that it's not merely that you know these things. It's knowing them and doing them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Our passage starts with talking about what Jesus knew, but it displays what Jesus did. He calls us not just to know, but to do. Christianity is not merely an intellectual pursuit. It's plenty intellectual, but it's more than intellectual. It flows out into daily life, even in the most mundane task, like washing dirty feet. Jesus was indeed the disciples' teacher and Lord, yet he voluntarily did the job of a slave to meet the need they had. All of them could surely see how dirty everyone's feet was. All of them lived in a culture where it was a customary thing for a slave to take care of that problem first thing upon entering the house, but none of them did it. Instead, we know from Luke 22 that right in the middle of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, symbolic of his self-sacrificing death, for our sins, they were arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom. They were neglecting doing the menial tasks. They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. If you think serving Jesus is about position, power, respectability, you don't understand ministry. In fact, you don't understand Christianity, and you don't understand Jesus. Paul tells Timothy that to desire the office of an overseer, for instance, is a good thing. But many think that the role of a pastor, elder, overseer is something like climbing the corporate ladder, making it into the elite group, that it's about getting to tell people what to do, that it's about people thinking highly of you. If that's your view and you enter the role of an under-shepherd, you're in for a major correction. Because if that's what it ends up being, it's not Christianity. If you're going to be true to the Lord and you're going to be true to the gospel, it won't be anything like that. 
So you want to get busy doing the menial task and don't stop doing them, no matter what your role in the body may be. Lead by example. And this, this principle applies to anything and everything we do as believers. If you're currently a student, you, you've got to have a higher goal than just making good grades and finding a lucrative career. You're in class with real people who have real needs. What are you doing about them? Even your teacher is a real person with real needs. If you're a parent, your goal can't merely be for your children to make you look good. That's the most horrible reason to give your child for doing the right thing. Make sure you make me look good. And a lot of times what we say sounds just like that. Sometimes we call it our testimony. Good parenting requires a lot of self-sacrifice. We know this. It's 10,000 mundane, lowly tasks for discipling, for the sake of discipling the next generation to follow Jesus. And that means wiping runny noses. That means staying up through the night to care for sick ones. It means taking valuable time to listen well to your teenager, process new hurdles and discoveries. That means modeling what serving Jesus looks like with humble love displayed in your private life. Are you teaching your kids to serve you or to serve Jesus? And kids, let me say this to you. We, we live in an entitlement age. If you know Jesus, and there are other people that came to Jesus at four too. If you know Jesus, you ought to be serving somebody. And, and don't think that someday you're going to do some grand and glorious service to God if you're not willing to clean up your room or take out the trash or do just the simple things like pick up your socks. Mundane things that need to be done for the sake of other people. Practice that. I mean, you could... <laughs> When you go to school and you're walking down the halls and there's trash in the hall, oh, that's the menial job of the maintenance crew. No, it's not. If there's trash on the floor, pick it up. Don't walk by it. Pick it up. Throw it away. You know where trash goes. It goes in trash cans. Okay? This ought to be the character of your life. You're not too good for it. Oh, I'm just a child. Serve Jesus as a child. Think of how many examples we have that, of that in the Old Testament and the New, of children serving Jesus better than their parents and grandparents do. Be that kind of follower of Jesus. If you run a business, if it's just for financial success or public recognition, I mean, you may gain those objections, but, uh, objectives, but you'll lose the greater eternal rewards of using your life to express love for God and practical love for others. You know, it's, it's the small inconveniences where we so often fail. I mean, the small inconveniences like, let, let, and parents, how about like with your kids in children's church? If, if there's a new kid in children's church, who will your kids be the one that meet them and find out their name and welcome them into the group. If, 
if you walk into a class and a Sunday school class and you see somebody you don't recognize, do you ignore them? Or do you do the minor inconvenience of going over to them and doing what you can to make them feel welcome? You walk into the sanctuary here and you see somebody that looks glum, they're cut off from everybody, whatever. You say, oh, well, they're just an unfriendly person, you know, kind of an introvert, leave them alone. You know, they're toxic people. Maybe they just lost a loved one. Maybe they just lost their job. Maybe they need a friend like you to actually find out who they are and what's going on in their life and to care about them. You see a family, I mean, we've talked about this, trying to find seats in the morning. Help them. It's a small thing. It's a small inconvenience, but it shows the servant-hearted humility of Jesus. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, for we serve the Lord Christ. Following Jesus is about dying to self and taking up a cross. It's about noticing the dirty feet and stooping down to wash them. The more people you lead, the more people you serve. We're to outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12. But if, if you hunger for recognition and praise for your service, you'll never be satisfied and you'll be easily led astray by flattery. If you require affirmation and credit in exchange for your service, you're going to be frustrated and disillusioned. But serve Jesus from the heart, however mundane or unnoticed, He notices. Even a cup of cold water given in His name will one day receive His reward. There's nothing you're going to do for Jesus. It's going to be lost. You don't have to have your friends notice. They don't have to notice. Your wife doesn't have to notice. Your husband doesn't have to notice. Your kids don't have to notice. You can serve Jesus, and he notices all of it. And he knows exactly why you did it. Philippians 2, 1 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And the way he writes it is, since there is, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. How does that happen? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Jesus. When you think this way, you're thinking like Jesus thought. You have the mind of Christ. True devotion to Jesus makes us glad to do even the most menial of tasks and service to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to extend that even beyond to those who haven't trusted in Jesus yet. Serving in humble, ordinary ways does not reduce our status with God, but rather shines out His character and His love the servant is not greater than his Lord. And as Jesus told his disciples, stop lording it over others like the Gentiles do, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. So Jesus declares that we'll be blessed, that we'll be happy to live in humble service to others. Have you ever seen that played out? Like in what ways does this truth frequently manifest itself despite how opposite it is to worldly wisdom? Have you been surprised when you do something for somebody that you didn't have to do, but you did it in the answer? How good that feels? 
It feels good. It, it does make your heart happy when you belong to Jesus. What mundane tasks can you take on to meet real needs among the people you know? You look around, well, there's gobs of people here. There can't be any needs. No, there's gobs of people here, so there's lots of needs. And what humble jobs do you shrink from, and why do you think you do? If Jesus had refused to do what was lowly and costly, where would we all be? And if you refuse to do what is lowly and costly, what impact will your refusal have on others and on your testimony for the gospel of Christ? These 17 verses are full of in-your-face instruction about gospel living. It's steadfast love, it's humble service, it's necessary cleansing, and Jesus has given us a blessed example of what it's like. Let's pray. God, you know our hearts, you know our ways. We pray that we might conform them to Jesus, that we might display His humility and His love. Lord, help us see the needs around us. Help us be quick to sacrifice of ourselves, even in the small things as well as the large, so that we might meet the needs that are obvious around us. We pray that we might be doing this lifelong. May this be our business to devote ourselves to urgent need, just as Titus 3 talks about. This is our way of life. Uh, Lord, Lord, help us. Help us have that kind of Christ-likeness in our service to you. First in Christ's name we pray.